Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have, we have had human fathers who correct us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Thus, or therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. 
whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. God, remind us that in light of your grace and in light of your mercy that has been poured out so abundantly upon our lives, that you are indeed a consuming fire. We heard today, even in Sunday school, the scripture from Matthew chapter 7, when at the end of days, those come to Jesus and cry out to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in your name? Did we not perform miracles and cast out demons in your name? Receive us into your kingdom. But your response to them was, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I did not know you. Father, help us realize that what is more important than us knowing Jesus is to be sure that Jesus knows us. Father, I pray that we would be a people that would look to and embrace you and your word, your gospel, and that we would live our lives and pursue peace and holiness in you, that we would see you one day and that we would hear those words, enter in my good and faithful servant. Father, we ask that you would perform this in your grace by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see several things that the Bible commands us. And one of the first things we see here, beginning in verse 3, is that we must consider Jesus. And why must we consider Jesus? We must consider Jesus, the writer says, lest we become discouraged, lest we become weary and discouraged in our souls. So he's not talking about physical weariness. He's talking about a weariness and a discouragement in your soul. The Greek word for soul is the word that speaks of our mind, our will, and our emotions. And this is where God is telling us, commanding us, encouraging us to consider Jesus so that we don't faint in our minds, in our souls. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He endured the suffering and the shame of the cross, taking the wrath of our God in our stead. Let us consider Jesus, so that we do not become weary and discouraged in our souls, so that we do not faint in our minds and give up our race. Remember this letter written to these believers is liking our life to a race. He said, your life is like a race. Run your race with endurance. We saw that in the first two verses of this chapter. Let us, looking unto Jesus by faith, lay aside every weight and every sin, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's your course. Your life is the course God has set before you. And he set it before you that you would run it with endurance. 
Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We wait on the Lord by considering the Lord. You can't wait on the Lord without considering the Lord. And we wait on the Lord. We consider the Lord and his promise to renew our strength to give us wings, to raise us up, that we would have legs to run our race and not be weary, that we would be able to walk by faith and not faint in our souls. The writer reminds us, he reminds those readers, and he also reminds us that you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. This refers not only to Christ, who shed his blood, but it makes reference to Abel. So it refers to Christ. It refers to all of those who have willingly given up their life, striving against sin, upholding the faith. He said, you have endured trouble. You have had persecution, but you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. In other words, I'm writing this letter to you guys. You're still alive. But there are the brethren who have literally given up their life for the faith, contending against sin. And the Lord has promised that he would renew us, that he would lift us up, that as we strive against sin, even to bloodshed, that he would be our strength And so we consider him, we wait on him, we run our race, we walk by faith. We do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Consider that God loves us, and because he loves us, he chastens us. And this is exactly what the writer tells us in these verses from verse 8 to verse 13. He says, consider the love of the Father who chastens us, who rebukes us, who teaches us and corrects us. We endure his correction knowing that he deals with us as with sons. The question the writer asks is, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And this implies that a father loves his son, and out of that love for his son, out of his love for his child, he chastens or he disciplines or he corrects that child. To chasten a son is to teach and to correct a child. The fatal mistake we make in our modern lack of sensibility is to equate correction or chastening with punishment. It is not that. It is love. Chastening and correction may involve punishment, but punishment administered by a loving parent is not bad. It actually is very right and very good, even if it could be very painful to that child in every way possible. Every good father will chasten his children. It's not unloving, but rather it indicates true love. In Christ, God is our true Father, and His chastening is to accomplish His loving purpose in our lives, just like we discipline our children so that our children grow up in the right way, in the fear and nurture of the Lord, and they stay on the paths of righteousness for His namesake, because we know that 
the other paths may seem good and may seem pleasant and pleasurable for a time, but the end of those paths lead us to destruction. So we need to be encouraged that God deals with us as sons. If God did not chasten us, it would mean that we are not his child because God chastens those whom he loves, those who are his children. He does so for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. The chastening of the father is not conveying his his hostility toward his children, but his love. And though sometimes painful, that correction is for our good. And the Bible says that it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are to strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for our feet. That's a picture of someone weary and discouraged who's lost all strength and they're wandering aimlessly. God's correction, God's chastening, God's love comes and it strengthens us, it straightens us, and it puts us on the right path so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather that it be healed. God's loving correction is for our healing and for our life. The writer here tells us we must pursue peace with all people and holiness. We cannot pursue peace without pursuing holiness. Do you realize that? And we cannot pursue holiness without pursuing peace. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see the Lord. Jesus said, if you don't forgive as you've been forgiven, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. If you refuse to forgive, Jesus says, you can't receive forgiveness. How can we be at peace with someone if we don't pursue peace. And so we see that peace and holiness go hand in hand together. We pursue peace with all people, but not at the expense of holiness. So to pursue peace is a holy endeavor. And we should rightly pursue peace. And we should rightly pursue holiness. The scripture says, be holy as your God is holy. Now we understand that we can't do that in our flesh. We can't do that as an act of our will. Then how do we do it? Well, we do it the same way everybody else recorded in Hebrews 11 did everything they did, by faith. By faith, we are holy as God is holy. Not because we can behave perfectly holy, but because we trust in the perfectly holy one. And our desire, in spite of all of our problems and shortcomings, is to be holy and to live holy. And so that desire comes from where? Well, it doesn't come out of our hearts because our hearts have no desire for, ho- for holiness. Romans 3 says that. There's none who seek after God. No, there are none. There's none good. No, not one. As Paul writes that letter, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the prophets. Isaiah or Ezekiel 18 says, there's coming a day when God will put a new heart in you. He'll take out your stone-cold heart your hard heart, and he'll put in you a warm heart of flesh. That's what happens when we're born again. God puts a new heart in us. And the reason we can desire holiness now is because God has put a new heart in us. We're still limited by our flesh. We still have unrenewed minds that are 
being renewed. Sanctification is still a process that God is taking us through and working out all of our kinks and all of our faults. But guess what? As we trust in Jesus, we're not saved because we have all of our kinks and faults worked out. We're saved in spite of our kinks, in spite of our faults, because we're not looking to our ability to get our life straightened out. We're looking to Jesus. We're looking to the Holy One. And we desire, as we look unto Jesus, we desire to be holy as He is holy. That's what God has put in our heart. We pursue peace with all men up to the point that peace violates the holiness of God. Let me give you an example. We cannot pursue peace with men who approve of murdering babies if peace means not pointing out and not opposing their murder. We can't do that. We can't be at peace with those who want to continue murdering. This is what Bonhoeffer realized in Nazi Germany. I can't be at peace with the Nazi. They're killing the Jews. They're exterminating Jews. How can we pretend like we're at peace with the Nazis? We can't be at peace with them. We must oppose them. And he did. And you know what it cost Bonhoeffer? It cost him his life. He was hung by the Nazis because of his opposition to their genocide. And their plan. It's the same for us today. We pursue peace, but not to the point that it violates the holiness of God. We can't approve of murder. Here's another example. We can't pursue peace with men if peace requires approving of lifestyles and behaviors the Bible clearly defines as sinful. We cannot call lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, and queer lifestyles holy when the Bible calls them unholy and sinful. We cannot define marriage any other way except the way the Bible defines it, between one man and one woman. To define marriage any other way is not holy, it's actually unholy and sinful. To do so would not be pursuing peace with men, but rather engaging in hostility toward God. Do you get that? We may think we're pursuing peace by trying to compromise, but in reality, all we're doing is engaging in hostility against God and against His Word and against His truth. And that is not going to bring peace to anyone. That will only bring God's judgment and God's wrath. The only way to pursue real peace with all men is to pursue holiness as revealed to us in the Word of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do not ultimately pursue Holiness, we cannot have peace with God or with men. For the Bible says that Jesus himself is our peace. If we're not pursuing the peace and holiness of God, then we are pursuing sin. The more we become mired in our sin, the more we struggle with bitterness toward God and toward men. A good example of this is in the life of Esau. Remember the story when Esau sold his birthright? For a bowl of porridge. Instead of pursuing God, Esau pursued sin. His pursuit of sin caused a root of bitterness to develop. It was Esau's sin of rejecting his birthright that caused him to become bitter toward his brother Jacob. And that root of bitterness 
is always found in sin. The root of bitterness always begins and grows from our sin. Sin produces that root, and it is our sin that allows bitterness to take root in our own hearts. A root of bitterness develops as a person pursues sin instead of peace and holiness. And that bitterness will manifest most clearly when a person mired in their sin attempts to justify their sinfulness. You've probably all, well, I'll just say I've experienced that myself. I have been in the place of trying to justify my sinfulness. And in my attempt to justify my sinfulness, I realize how much bitterness is in my heart. And when that realization comes, what we must do is repent of our sin. It is in our pursuit of true peace and true holiness found in our pursuit of the one, and, the one true and living God that we will find ourselves living free from the bondage of sin and the bitterness that is produced by it. The writer says we must come to Mount Zion. In other words, we must come to Jesus. So you remember in the Exodus story, when they come out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain, and the children of Israel are down there below on the plain, looking up at this mountain, and they see nothing but fire and smoke in the midst of the darkness, and they know Moses is up there, and they're terrified. They're thinking, God, Moses must be consumed. How can he survive? And Moses comes down, he says, everyone gather around the mountain, but don't touch it, because if you touch it, you will die. And God's going to speak to you, and God did speak to them. And it was so terrifying that the children of Israel says, Moses, we don't want God to speak to us anymore. He's too scary. And the Bible even says that Moses was exceedingly fearful. That mountain is called Mount Sinai. The writer of Hebrews is writing to these believers and writing for us today and reminding us that we have not come to Mount Sinai, that mountain that is filled with darkness and fire and smoke and judgment. We have come to Mount Zion. And we are not going back to Mount Zion. I mean Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than even the blood of sprinkling that Abel offered when he offered his sacrifice to God. We have come to a new and a living way by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is better. Remember, this is the theme of Hebrews. The theme of this entire letter is this. Jesus is better. He has provided a better sacrifice with a better covenant. He's offered and established through a better priesthood. He has once for all paid the price to redeem us and to make us just and perfect through faith in him. We no longer fear the darkness for we have come to the light of Mount Zion, to the light that shines brighter than the sun, the light that is the Lamb of God. When you read the end of the book of Revelation and it shows us and it talks of and it speaks of the holy Jerusalem and in that 
holy Jerusalem. It says there is no need of sun or moon for the lamb is its light. This is where we have come to by, by faith. This is where we have come to by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the writer of Hebrews says, we must not refuse him who speaks. There is no escape, he said, for those who turned away from God, who spoke from earth and Mount Sinai. He says, there is no escape for those who turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And that is why we should not be dismayed or discouraged by all that is happening around us. For no one will escape him who speaks from heaven. We sometimes think that things are getting darker and darker and darker and things are getting worse and worse and worse and there's no hope and we're like chicken little feeling like the sky is falling. But the Bible presents the exact opposite picture for the believer because we're not moved by what appears to be the sky falling because we look to one greater than the sky. In fact, he created the sky. He created the stars and the sun and the moon. And all of that falling down that we see in this judgment language painted for us in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this decreation language that speaks of judgment, God is greater than his creation because he is the creator. And he will preserve us and he will hold us. And so we should not be weary or discouraged by the things that we see. We should take hope in knowing who our God is. For just as God shook the earth... The scripture says he will not only shake the earth, but he will shake heaven. To refuse God is to be shaken. Sooner, if not later, we will be shaken if we refuse him who speaks. He is speaking to us today by his son, revealed to us by his spirit, and working in us through his word. God will remove all that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Do not refuse him who is speaking that you may remain. Things are being shaken all around us. Governments, institutions, the very foundation and the fabric of our nation and our society. All things are being shaken. We have no reason to fear, though, if we are standing on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him, we cannot be shaken. We have every reason to fear if we are standing upon anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For apart from him... We will be shaken and we will not remain if our trust is in anyone or anything else. When the shaking has stopped, the only things that will remain are those who belong to him and those things that are from him and of him. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, and we are, I want you to see that at the end of this chapter. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church, but a member of the body of Christ, a covenant member. And here... We invite you to come. So if you understand what it means to trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. And come to this table of grace knowing that it is the grace and the mercy of our Lord 
that has invited us to this table. And we're given a place at his table in his house by the work of Jesus Christ, who gave up his body and poured out his blood for our redemption. We are many members joined by one life in one body. You are the members of the body of Christ. So look around. Look at young. Look at old. Look at the diversity. Look at the body of Christ and know that we are all joined together as one in him by his grace through faith. Jesus is present at this table because Jesus lives in you. Christ in you, Paul writes in his letter to the, to the Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you come to this table, you come and the presence of Christ is in you by grace through faith. And this is how Jesus is at our feast and at this table that he invites us to trust in Jesus and come to the table of the Lord. All right, here's your charge, church. By faith, we must be looking unto Jesus. By faith, we must be considering Jesus in all things. If we are not, we will become weary and discouraged in our souls. We will grow tired of running the race, and we will run back to our sin and become mired in that sin and become bitter. That bitterness will take root in our hearts, and it will eventually consume all of our life. The only remedy, the only hope we have against that is Jesus. As we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always, to not be anxious, but in all things through prayer with thanksgiving, we take all to God and we trust in his promise that he will guard our hearts and guard our minds with his peace that passes all understanding because he himself is our peace and he has made peace with us. And when we fail to run to God, when we find that we are not pursuing the peace of God and the holiness of God, we must ask ourselves the difficult questions that we often wish to ignore. We must ask ourselves, do we really want change or do we just want our circumstances around us to change? And there is a difference between wanting change, having your life changed, and simply having your circumstances change. God in His grace may be allowing circumstances that will cause us to seek Him and experience true and lasting change by grace through faith in Him. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Cry out to Jesus. Pursue Him. Pursue His holiness and be changed for His glory. Amen.